Rheumatologic problems are some of the most common health conditions we see as primary care professionals. They can become frustrating for both the provider and the patient, as in many cases it may take months and sometimes even years to determine a correct diagnosis. There are a variety of new tests available to help us establish a diagnosis, as well as multiple new and effective treatment options. This episode is the first of a seven-episode mini-series on Mayo Clinic Talks dedicated to rheumatologic health problems to aid in the recognition, diagnosis, and treatment for your patients. Please stay tuned in future weeks for the next six episodes. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Gout is a very common inflammatory arthritis, and it's a result of deposition of monosodium urate crystals in and around the joints. Although it's typically, but not always, a monoarticular arthritis tends to be more common in men. Many patients who've had an acute episode of gout say it's the worst pain they've ever experienced. When women have been surveyed, Nearly half said the pain from gout was worse than childbirth. Management consists of both treating acute episodes as well as preventing future attacks. Today's podcast topic is what everyone should know about gout. And my guests include Dr. Len Peterson and Dr. Clem Mache, both rheumatologists from the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss the pathophysiology of gout, its typical presentation, how to establish a diagnosis and management tips. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Lynn and Clem, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's start by talking about the typical classic presentation of gout. You know, I think everybody knows it's in one of the great toes. Why does it seem to select that joint? It's related to the chemistry and physiology of gout in that uric acid precipitates in arthritic joints and the most arthritis that's found in the human body as far as degenerative arthritis is the first MTP joint. And then there's some issues with temperature, you know, crystals form easier in lower temperatures. And then of course, Classically, you wake up in the middle of the night with gout, and the thoughts there are that it's related to some of the fluid leaving your foot and leg and the concentration of the crystals increasing overnight. Okay. Most patients who I have taken care of with gout do say that most of their attacks seem to occur at night, and that's a good explanation for that. So let's talk about what's happening in the joint pathophysiologically. What's going on there? Well, gout is a disease, a metabolic disorder of increased uric acid. Uric acid is the end product of purine metabolism. And years and years ago, we lost, humans lost the ability or developed a mutation in the uricase gene. So we can't metabolize uric acid into allotoin, which is much more soluble. So in these patients who get gout, they have high uric acid, and that can be from different things, which you probably all know. Um, 10% of the time, it's an overproduction issue. 90% of the time, it's an under-excretion problem, so kidney problem. So who's more likely to get gout? What are the risk factors for the condition? Well, family history, and then uh, 
associated metabolic syndrome, hypertension, and then various medications, especially diuretics. Women tend not to get gout until menopause, and the thought there is that estrogen is uricosuric. So their serum urate levels only begin to rise around the time of menopause. I recall being told many years ago that low-dose aspirin tends to uh, increase one's risk. Is that a true statement? Ignore that. That's not <laughs> Ignore true at that all. Information. It's really not true. Interesting. It may okay. temporarily increase the serum urate, but frankly, the people taking low-dose aspirin need to be on it because they tend to be vasculopaths. Mm -hmm. So I don't. it's not a major issue with hyperuricemia. But thiazide diuretics are... Uh... A common medication. And loop diuretics. Okay. So what are the common triggers for an acute flare? So usually it's something that's going to affect the uric acid levels. So either if you're starting or stopping a urate lowering therapy, or if somebody's got an underlying condition, trauma or dehydration, or if they're in the hospital for sepsis, that's going to affect the uric acid levels. And then that's, those are the patients that are um, going to have attacks. Medications can also be triggers or diets can sometimes trigger things if patients have hyperuricemia already. Okay. So gout is a uric acid issue. And I'd say the vast majority, if not all, patients have elevated uric acid, I assume. Is that correct? Correct. correct. During the time of an acute attack, their uric acid levels might be one or two milligrams per deciliter lower because of all the cytokines from the inflammation. The true uric acid level is going to be elevated. Hyperuricemia is essential. And are these individuals with a history of gout also at risk for uric acid renal stones? They are. The uric acid gets excreted in the urine, and the urine is very acidic. So the people with hyperuricemia, about 20% of those will have kidney stones. It's not always uniform uric acid. They're often an itis of uric acid with calcium around them. But uric acid kidney stones only make up about 5 to 10% of all kidney stones. So let's talk about how we establish a diagnosis. Uh, most of the patients who I have who have had gout aren't having an acute flare. So when they come in to see me, they describe their episode. So what tests should I be doing for this individual? And then we'll talk about what we should do with the patient who's having an acute attack. The classical attack of gout, you know, podagra is really a clinical diagnosis. And usually it can be made easily in the office because the pain accelerates rapidly to an extreme level in a very short period of time. And then the usual attack of gout settles down in seven to 10 days, mm -hmm. uh, even without taking any treatment. Okay. So that typical first MTP joint podagra is, that's a clinical diagnosis. But the uh, Episodes in other joints behave the same way, but if if it's not typical podagra, then it would be ideally it would be good to do a joint aspiration to confirm the presence of urate crystals. Often at the time of an attack, as Lynn mentioned, the serum urate level may be normal, so you should not be dissuaded by that. And in small joints like the forefoot, it is helpful to get an x-ray because you might find that the person already has an erosion in the first MTP joint, which is kind of the radiographic equivalent of having a tophus. So it, it is helpful to get, to get an x-ray of the small joints. The larger joints, knee, elbow, usually you're not going to see anything that's of any value. 
So Clem, you mentioned other joints, and I think we think about the first MTP when we have patients who have had gout. How often does this appear in other joints? Well, it can be the arch of the foot or the ankle. Often we'll see patients who are initially treated for cellulitis because of the extreme inflammatory edema that's involved. But gout can affect any joint. The knee, in older patients, we can frequently see an attack of gout in the upper extremities, usually in osteoarthritic finger joints, uh, or the elbow, along with an olecranon bursitis, which can also be urate-driven. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, typical radiologic findings. What are those for a patient who has maybe had recurrent episodes of gout, what might we see on x-ray? Well, you'd be looking for a periarticular erosion with the classical overhanging edge. That's classical urate damage to the joint, and it's, it's related to a deposit of uric acid adjacent to the bone, which has triggered an erosion to develop there. More frequently, you see nothing on the x-ray or just some increased density in the soft tissue adjacent to the joint. Mm -hmm. There is new imaging with dual energy CT scanning, which is not available in all locations. That can demonstrate the presence of urate, and we often will get that in atypical cases where we don't have the opportunity to do a joint aspiration. Okay. So, Clem, as you mentioned, this is a clinical diagnosis, and... Can we diagnose gout confidently without actually getting uric acid crystals from the synovium? I imagine patients aren't too happy about uh, right. having that performed. Well, I think with typical pedagra, you can be confident with making a clinical diagnosis. But otherwise, I, I think one of the take-home messages with gout is to remember that it is the most common inflammatory arthritis worldwide, especially in men. And as rheumatologists, we see patients who are being treated with biologic therapies, TNF inhibitors, who turn out to have atypical gout. So any seronegative arthritis deserves eventually a synovial fluid analysis to make sure that it's not atypical gout. Okay. And I think other things with uric acid level I mean, the uric acid level we said is not diagnostic, but it can be suggestive if it's elevated. But if they don't have a joint that could be aspirated, which is the gold standard, if they have TOFI, that would be another way of diagnosing it. And then what we often see are patients who we suspect of gout because they have a good history where these they got intermittent inflammatory symptoms, but on the time of exam, they don't have TOFI and they don't have any synovitis, then that would be a time to do advanced imaging like a dual energy CT scan. And that often can be given, can give us the diagnosis. Okay. How difficult can it be to differentiate gout and pseudogout? Does that ever create a lot of confusion? Clinically, they both can present that way. Gout, usually it's going to be lower extremity. Pseudogout is going to be upper extremity. But a synovial fluid aspiration is going to answer that question. The advanced imaging studies can offer some benefit, but synovial fluid is going to be the best way. And you can have concomitant both of those uh, crystals in one patient. Okay. Well, let's turn to treatment. Let's start with the patient who has an acute episode of gouty arthritis. What's the recommended treatment for them? 
The important thing is to get the inflammation under control because we know that patients with gout have higher cardiovascular risks. So we want to get that inflammation under control. And there's various ways we can do that, either with NSAIDs, low-dose prednisone by mouth or intraarticular injections or colchicine. So any of those can be done. And the ACR 2020 guidelines recommend, depends on their comorbidities, where the site of gout is affecting them, and sometimes patient preferences. One other thing that can be very helpful in patients with acute gout is IL-1 inhibitors, but unfortunately they're not approved or FDA approved in the United States. They're very helpful in patients who are in the hospital, and sometimes we can't get a use anakinra in the hospital setting and get it covered because it's a, they're very safe. You can use them in patients with kidney disease or sepsis, or they've had transplants. In the outpatient setting, it's a little bit harder to get the IL-1 inhibitors approved. Traditionally. Indomethacin has been used as the anti-inflammatory of choice. Is there anything magic about indomethacin? Is there any reason that is better than any of the other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? Indomethacin is, I think it's the classic one because it was the first available NSAID beyond aspirin. But a lot of patients don't tolerate it very well. Right. Mm -hmm. And my preference is to use naproxen because they can get it over the counter. So they're never without a prescription. And for over the counter naproxen, they've got normal renal function. I often recommend that they take four tablets all at once as a loading dose and then two tablets every 12 hours. And that they can find it anywhere. So they're, they're never without acute treatment. The problem is that increasingly we see people who shouldn't be taking NSAIDs, mm-hmm. you know, and then usually we resort to a brief five-day course of prednisone. Get Lynn's input on this, but I personally do not like colchicine because it has a lot of drug interactions and patients don't tolerate it. And they often don't take it properly. Colchicine only works if you take it immediately with the onset of the attack. If you wait a day or two, it's not going to work. So it's not my favorite. There are patients who've used it and know how to use it and like it and don't have any contraindications. But my preference would be either an NSAID or prednisone. You agree, Lynn? I will use it, but I agree. There are lots of different um, drug interactions with colchicine. So we have to be cognizant of that. So when do we decide to start a patient on chronic suppressive treatment? Well, the ACR 2020 guidelines have kind of addressed that. They recommended to start in somebody who's got had a year, who's had gout flares more than two per year, and they have evidence of TOFI, or if they have any x-ray damage, or if they have more than two, any more than two flares. And then they also say, if you've only had one flare per year if the uric acid levels are greater than nine or if they have chronic kidney disease stage three or if they have kidney stones they need to be started on uric lowering therapy the other recommendation that the guidelines stated that is that we should start uric lowering therapy at the time of the gout flare just to help get patients on treatment because non-compliance is such a big issue so those are the indications And we do see patients who tell us after one attack, I never want to have that again. They want to go on urate-lowering therapy after the first episode. Yeah. That's negotiable, but uh, there are (laughs) patients who prefer to take a pill every day to prevent it. 
I think in my experience, I've had more difficulty convincing patients to take suppressive therapy only because I have a feeling that some of those episodes they're describing is not really true gouty attacks, that they're probably yes. something else. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I found with in those patients who are kind of conflicted about starting is if we get a dual energy CT scan and it shows a lot of urate deposition, you can show that to the patients and they can see that huge urate load they have in their body. And that often helps them to decide, yes, I need to be on a treatment. So somebody who has a significantly positive dual energy CT scan with tophaceous gout, that's sometimes very helpful for the patients to kind of convince themselves, yes, I need to be on treatment. Now, I have been told that we should wait a period of time before we start chronic suppressive therapy from the acute attack as it could flare up again. Is, is that no longer true? That's generally not true. I think part of that occurred in the past because we mistakenly often started patients on like 300 milligrams of allopurinol. And that would result in a very abrupt drop in the serum urate, and then they would start getting flares and attacks and didn't want to take it. But the current standard of care is to always start a, a low dose, and you can easily do that in most patients without a risk of them having a flare of their recent attack. Plus, it's a good idea because of the problem with noncompliance and confusion about what medicines they should take when to start treatment when the patient has well focused on trying to prevent it and and you've got them in the office to discuss that. Mm -hmm. We'll start with allopurinol. Starting at like 100 milligrams per day, do you titrate up to 300 or do you leave some people on less than 300? Well, that's based on the serum urate. Sometimes we're surprised that it doesn't take much to get the serum urate down. But the mistake that has been commonly made in the United States, a lot of primary care providers th uh, thought that the maximum dose of allopurinol is 300 milligrams a day. And that's actually not true. Many people, especially you know your large vascular path, metabolic, obese patients need more than 300 milligrams of allopurinol a day. So we usually would start 100 and then every few weeks or every month, gradually ratcheted up based on where the serum urate is with the target in most patients we want to get it below six milligrams percent which is the keep it below the crystallization threshold for people with tophaceous gout ideally trying to get it down to five if they have renal disease we start even smaller doses and there are some calculations as far as how much to use but this is not an emergency so I tend to be a chicken with allopurinol, so I'll start them at 50 like every day or 50 milligrams every other day, and then gradually go up from there. Okay. Well, there have been some new therapies released for treating uh, chronic gout. Can you review some of the newer treatment options we have now? Right now, we have the two xanthine oxidase inhibitors, allopurinol and febuxostat. The guidelines recommend allopurinol first and then follow up with febuxostat. The uricosuric agents that we have available in the United States is probenicid. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the newest agent is pro, um, peglotacase, which is a genetically engineered uricase agent. This medication works great. It plummets the uric acid dramatically, but it's got a few caveats. So it has to be given IV every two weeks. 
you have to monitor the uric acid levels because if patients, they can, there's a 25% chance of them getting an infusion reaction or 5% chance of getting anaphylaxis. So we need to monitor the uric acid to make sure that they're not developing antibodies. So every time before they have their infusion, they have to get a uric acid level. If it's climbing and greater than six, that's suggestive of antibody formation. And then we would recommend discontinuing the therapy. We have to stop the urate lowering therapy while they're on peglotocase just so we can monitor the uric acid levels. The other thing is um, we found is that we use immunomodulatory agents such as methotrexate, we can um, help to prevent the anaphylactic reactions or the infusion reactions. So methotrexate has been shown in the mirror study to be very helpful. So I usually start that agent a few weeks before I get start, um, patients get started on peglotocase and it's helped to extend the time the patients can continue on this agent. Usually we'll do it for six, sometimes longer if their uric acid level stays lower and they're doing fine. They have significant tophaceous gout. I have a patient who's probably has been on it for about nine months because they've had such severe tophaceous gout. Once they stop, then they go back on a urate lowering therapy. They, the uric acid is going to continue to rise. So you stop the case, get back on uric lowering therapy and keep the uric acid level low. Well, for years, all we had was allopurinol and probenicid. Is there any advantage to some of the newer products? When should we be using them? It is very good that we have fluboxostat, uloric, because there are some patients who are allergic to allopurinol. There's another point with starting the allopurinol. In Southeast Asians and African-Americans, they need to have genetic screening. There's a test, HLA-B5801, which is a marker for a higher risk of getting a hypersensitivity reaction to uh, allopurinol, which can be quite severe to the point of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So in, in those ethnic groups, uh, we recommend checking to see if it would be safe to give them allopurinol. Once fulbuxostat becomes generic, we probably won't bother doing that. We'll just, we'll put the high-risk groups on fulbuxostat. Other than that, fluboxostat, I think, is a second-line agent. It's only for people who cannot tolerate allopurinol. It's much more expensive. It actually, when it was developed in the phase three trials, the, the company actually used the perception in the United States that it you should only give people up to 300 milligrams of allopurinol. So, of course, their medication looked better even though rheumatologists would not stop at 300 milligrams. So there's no advantage to it other than for people who cannot tolerate allopurinol. And it certainly is terrific that we have another urate-lowering agent mm -hmm. because in the past, these poor patients would suffer terribly with tophaceous gout and there was nothing we could do to suppress it. One other thing about febuxostat is that there is a black box warning for cardiovascular events. And that was all from a post-marketing study called the CARES trial. It looked at allopurinol versus febuxostat. And there, in that trial, it showed that the patients who were on febuxostat seemed to have higher risk for cardiovas cardiovascular events. However, there were many, many flaws with that study. Many of the patients dropped out of the study and many of the patients who had the events were off the medication already. 
So that study has been followed by two large randomized controlled trials, the FAST trial and the STOP-GOUT trial, and neither of those showed that there was increased risk for cardiovascular events in patients with febuxostat and that it was safe in, in chronic kidney disease. So most of us feel that febuxostat is very safe, but there's, the black box warning still is in place and the yeah. ACR guidelines recommend just discussing that with the patient. Okay. Finally, is there any role in counseling patients regarding their diet if they've had some one or more attacks of gout? That's a good point. There's a study that shows if you can lose 10 kilograms, you're, you can decrease the uric acid levels by 0.6 milligrams per deciliter. Thing is, if somebody's got hyperuricemia and gout, decreasing the uric acid by a half a point is really not going to get them down to threshold or target. So yeah, diet is important, avoiding purine agents, foods and, that, and drugs and that kind of thing. But most of those are only going to decrease the uric acid 0.5, so not get you to target. So they're helpful, but they don't obviate the need for urate-lowering therapy. I think diet plays a bigger role in triggering attacks in patients who are not under adequate control. My favorite example is what I call a Green Bay seven course meal, a six pack and a brat. <laughs> you have poorly controlled gout and you have that for dinner, you're gonna be very sorry that evening. So you, you can trigger an attack uh, with the wrong foods. The other important recent observation is high fructose corn syrup is the only sugar that in its metabolism causes serum urate levels to rise. And as we all know, the, in the United States, we're being poisoned by high fructose corn syrup. It's in everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I caution patients not to be drinking concentrated fruit juice. If fruit's good for you, but have a whole piece of fruit, not an eight ounce glass of orange juice, because yeah. it would be equivalent, I think, of having a beer with breakfast. You know, it's just not good for you. Well, to our Wisconsin listeners, you've now heard about a new diet available. <laughs> so Lynn and Clem, you've given us some good information. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Well, for me, I think the important thing that I try to educate patients is that this is a metabolic condition. We have to treat it as we would with heart disease or um, cardiovascular disease long-term. So patients need to be um, on treatment for life. It's not just uh, episodic treatment that they need treatment for just their symptoms. And one other thing that I think is very important, education is extremely important. Gout management is fairly simple but it's frequently mismanaged. So education is really key, but we often don't have a lot of time in our offices to examine or to educate the patients. So many studies show that using allied health, either pharmacy-led or nurse-led groups can be very helpful. And we have established nurse-led rheumatology in our rheumatology division, gout pro protocol, where the nurses educate the patients, they follow the patients, they get them to target, they kind of help make sure they have their meds, that kind of thing, and it's been very successful. I agree that educating the patients the most important thing. I found over time that reassuring them that it's not because they're out of control, obese with their diet, <laughs> I explained to them that this is a problem with the uric acid pump in their kidneys, and that's why it tends to be hereditary. 
and why we can't really treat it with diet alone. And they need to be on medication, just like some people need to be on insulin for their diabetes. There is a very high compliance issue with long-term treatment of hyperuricemia. And it's important to continue emphasizing to your patient that yes, even though you're doing well, you need to continue taking your medicine. Otherwise, within a very short period of time, the gout will come back. Well, Clem, you got any diets for Vikings fans? <laughs> Just Packers, huh? Yeah, Ludafisk. What can I say? <laughs> we He's have suffering. been discussing gout with Dr. Lynn Peterson and Dr. Clem Mache, both from the Division of Rheumatology at the Mayo Clinic. Lynn and Clem, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's been a fun discussion. Happy to help. Thank you. You can now listen to several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well. <laughs>